Thank you. Thank you to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. My name is Kamisha Foley. I am subbing in for our regular host, Amy Antonucci, and I would like to welcome you to our True Tales Live on Zoom show. Uh, today is January 31st, and it's our first show for 2023. Thanks to all of you watching and listening, and especially those here in our live online audience. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first person experience stories. Stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. So happy to be with everyone, even here on Zoom. And we do have some suggestions for making the most of this online format, since we believe that storytelling is an exchange between the tellers and listeners. Here is how you keep us going. As I mentioned, keep your video on so you can have big physical reactions in order to connect with the rest of the audience and the tellers. Two, express your reactions in the chat box. You have, uh, we save the chat box and we share that with the tellers later on. Three, put your questions that you have for our tellers in the chat and after the stories, we will do some Q&A. But before we get to that, we have a very special announcement from our good colleague and fellow board member, Sarah Bedingfield. Sarah? Sure. Thanks, Kamisha. Um, I wanted to just, we've been doing Zoom online. Uh, we've been doing online storytelling for quite a while now, um, but we have a special event coming up in June, um, June 30th. This is a save the date announcement. So June 30th, um, we are doing a fundraiser and we are doing it in person. And it will be held at the Senior Center in Portsmouth. They have a lovely room for us. And there'll be more details as we go along. But we wanted to get that announcement out now so you could put it on your calendar. Um, we will be um, having um, a series of storytellers that night. And um, it should be a very fun event. So that's a save the date. Um, and it will be a fundraiser for us. Um, in the meantime, um, I want to thank everybody who has been giving us donations. You've been very generous and we appreciate that. Um, and we encourage people, if you um, are enjoying the shows and would like to make a contribution, um, please go to our website, which is truetaleslivenewhampshire.org, and you can hit the donate button and make a, a donation. Um, since we have been online, our donations have been few and far between, um, and we have some expenses that will come up, um, which includes um, the fundraiser, too, in terms of getting ready for that. So um, if you're feeling generous, we appreciate the donation. Um, and again, put on the calendar, June 30th, 2023, 6.30 p.m., Senior Center in Portsmouth. And we will give you more information each month as we get closer and closer to that event. So thanks, Kamisha, and take it away. Thanks, Sarah. And that's the new Senior Center on Cottage Avenue, correct? 
It is. They um, did some rehab in there and it's absolutely lovely. It is a lovely facility. It's great. And plenty of parking, free parking. (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. So tonight our show does not have a specific theme. It is open theme, but we will hear stories from Rand O'Brien, Chris Newcomb, and Steve Barnum. And of course, that will be followed by the Q&A with our tellers and then a short interview of Rand by David Frainer at the end. Pat Spaulding is our fabulous, fantabulous MC tonight. And so join me in welcoming Pat. It's all yours. Thank, thank you. Good to be here. I'm looking forward to tonight's stories. Indeed, I am. <laughs> and we are going to start off with Rand O'Brien, who lives in Durham, New Hampshire, was a psychotherapist for nearly 50 years, working mostly with people who experienced trauma, whether as children, veterans, or as adults. He is also a potter and a photographer. Three years ago, Rand retired to focus on photography, writing, and poetry. Tonight, he'll tell us a story about growing up on an Iowa farm amongst a community of German farmers. One day, when he was a boy, a junk man from outside of this familiar community rolled into his driveway. This unexpected event led Rand to a new and surprising understanding of his father and of his life. The story's title is Rural Route Number Two, Davenport, Iowa. Let's welcome Rand to the stage. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I grew up, I'm Rand O'Brien and this is Rural Route Number Two. I grew up in Iowa. You know, it's one of those three I states out there from New England. It goes Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. And that what there is that Idaho way out west, but we won't go that far west. We'll just stay in Iowa. I grew up on a farm. Well, well, not really. It was a corner of my grandmother's farm that she gave to my dad to build a house on. And from about nine years old on up until college, I went up the road and helped my step-grandfather Fred on the farm. Just a little bit ago, I was going through some memorabilia. Uh, We made a big downsizing and moved a few years ago. And now, like many of you might already experience, we're downsizing the downsizing because we don't all fit. So um, in doing that, I went through this box and here was this old leaflet from Sunday school. And I hadn't seen that in 60 years. Well, I've seen it, but I'm 60 years old and it's the Good Samaritan. And on the front is one of those usual things on church, you know, a painting of this biblical fella helping this fella down on the road. And when I saw that, it brought back a story. And that's the story for tonight. You have to remember, or if you've never been in the Midwest, gravel roads in the Midwest go straight. You know, they're laid down on the survey lines from 1850. And on our road, it went on for about three miles, never, never a curve, just straight as an arrow. And all the farms on the, on the road were 40 acres or 80 acres back and forth. And you knew everybody on the road, you know? You'd see a car coming down, 
because you could see way down the road unless the corn grew up. And you say, oh, Ralph's coming down from Barber. And he was a barber as well as a farmer. Or you'd hear John Deere chugging down and you'd look and, oh, Rogan Camps. No, oh, he's got a hay rake. He must be doing the back, back field, must be hay in the back field. Or you'd drive down, there'd be a car in the ditch and you go, oh, looks like I got drunk again last night. It was, you know, it's just the way it was. But there was this other thing though. You might have known everybody's business on the road, but if you got up to the house, then it was different. Um, my mom had a very clear rule that she gave me, which is you go to the house, you knock on the door and you talk to people outside. You don't go into the house ever unless you're invited in. And that's the way it was always was for me. In fact, even to the point when I go up to grandma's, before I go in the house, I'd knock on the door. It's my grandmother's, I'd still knock on the door. Or our neighbors right across the yard, uh, Bina and Johnny, one of my angels, knock on the door before you go in. It's just the way it was. Well, I, um, there was another story in there, which is my sister when she was in Germany um, with her, with one of the husbands, husband, excuse me. And um, she said that she was surprised, we were talking about this, that uh, there she stayed on the sidewalk out front and people would talk from the yard down. You didn't even get up to the door. Um, it, it, I guess it's part of the German keeping that the house is this, not necessarily sacred space, it's very private. Well, this story was once in, it was on a Saturday morning and we were going into Davenport. And as we were going into Davenport, my dad was down um, getting ready and I looked out and this old truck drives into the yard, into the driveway. And I know now it's an old one ton truck. It was red and you know, it had old sideboards on it, steak bed. And I said, hey, dad, dad, the junk men's here. Junk men was a regular thing back then. Um, they came there a couple times a year. They'd pick up, you know, iron, brass, and various things. And uh, it was like uh, the beginnings of got junk, you know? Um, and so they would take the junk away. You wouldn't pay them. They wouldn't pay you. And it was all theirs. Well, my dad came down, he was grumbling. He went to get into town and um, he says, I'll take care of him. And he go down a few stairs to the landing, to the back door and the guy gets out of the car. He's a huge man, he's huge. And he's a huge black man. It reminded me of watching the big football players on, on TV when I was a kid, I remember. And he was just big. So he came to the door, knocked on the door, and my dad answered the door. And uh, my dad said, well, yeah, we've got that iron down there in the corner of the yard. You certainly can have all of that. And the guy said, oh, that's good. Thank you, sir. And then I, I heard my dad say, you've got a cut on your hand pretty bad. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. I'll take care of it tonight. My dad said, ah, it looks pretty bad. They kibitzed for a while. Finally, my dad coaxed him in the house. So I backed away from the stairs and they came up and we just had a small two bedroom house from 1950, you know, those little boxes. 
And this guy like took over the whole kitchen. It was just huge. And my dad took him down the hall to the bathroom, which of course is in the center of the house and a very private space. And any stranger coming into the house would be an issue. Um, but having a black man there was quite unusual. It was the only time I remember ever that a black person came into our driveway. My dad took him in the bathroom and I remember standing you know, on the door and looking in and seeing my dad wash his hand and he put big gauze on his hand and wrapped his hand in that white adhesive tape. I don't even know if they make it anymore. And on his black skin, I remember the skin was so beautiful. It was all this white tape. Well, we went down the hall. My mom had made biscuits for um, breakfast and she was wiping down the stove. And my dad offered a glass of water to the man. You know, no, no, no. I don't need water. My dad offered him a glass. He said, it's good well water. And he drank it down, drank it right down. My dad offered another, another one. No, he wouldn't take that. Um, but my dad gave him some biscuits and a, and a paper napkin. And he went down, he said, thank you, sir. And my dad reminded him where the steel was. And he said, yeah, yeah, but I remember it's down in the corner. And my dad went back down to the bedroom getting ready. And um, I watched the man out, out in the room, out, out in the driveway. And he was throwing stuff in the back. And he came back and he had already put the biscuits in the truck. And he sat down and he looked back at our house. And I just remember this quiet look on his face. It was just a quiet, calm look. I always remembered that. And I realize now, I didn't have the root, the words back then, but there was this sort of sense of gratitude um, as he was looking back. Well, he closed the door and turned the, turned the truck around. You have to remember those old trucks didn't have power steering. Um, my, uh, my grandfather, when he was teaching me how to drive at 12 years old out in the field, uh, Fred would, you know, I'm just like, ah, I couldn't turn that thing. And he would say, that's power steering, takes all the power you got. Um, and so I'm turning it. So this guy finally got around when, once it starts moving, it's turning, it's okay. And he drove down the driveway and up the road. Well, my dad and I got this stuff together and we got in the car and drove up the road and went by grandma and Fred's. And there the truck was up there. And I saw him, the guy, standing out there talking to Fred. Now, Fred's a pretty good sized guy, big old German farmer. This guy was over him. And I remember seeing that big white bandage on his hand. And I knew that Fred was gonna give him some metal behind the machine shed there. There was always metal behind machine sheds on farms. We kept driving up. And I look back now, we never talked about that incident ever in the history of our family, never talked about it. And it was a very curious thing, I think, in hindsight from here that we never talked about it. And the other thing was, is that I guess we didn't really need to talk about it. And what was said was said and what happened happened. And that's what needed to be said was what happened.
And I understand that now. And I understand a little more something different about my dad. And the memory came back that he used to, he grew up in Muscatine, Iowa, which was the pearl button capital of the world, believe it or not. But that's a whole nother story, which we won't go to tonight. And, but down the street, Miles Avenue, there was a black family down there and he was a good friend with them and went to high school with one of the guys down there. I just remember that little story. So we keep on driving down the road. We go by Rugies and we go by Crafts. We go by Fishers, we go by Kalers. We get to the end of the road. And the end of the road is a big highway. We turned right to go into Davenport and we went into Davenport on Highway 61. And that was that. Thank you. Thank you, Rand. Um, so that memory just stayed with you for over 70 years or so, I suppose. Um, I have a similar memory of an egg lady that used to come to our house and um, she was every, I don't know, every week. Yeah, we bought eggs and she had this real edgy voice and she was so unlike anybody in the neighborhood. Um, but um, she was just this distinct memory of someone different and um, coming into our house and offering our eggs and um, it was a, an interesting exchange, these, these characters. We don't see enough differences in neighborhoods anymore. All right, thank you for rural route number two, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa. And next up, we have Chris Newcomb. And Chris is from Gorham, Maine. He taught gifted and talented students in Maine public schools for 30 years, he specialized in teaching creative problem solving and the creative process, as well as math and English language arts. Chris is the author of Up and Out, Creative Ways to Get Unstuck. <laughs> That's a book I should probably um, look into. He's also an actor and storyteller whose one person show, Think You Might Be Wrong, played to Full House's last winter at Footlights Theater in Falmouth, Maine. I went up to see them with a couple of friends, Gree and Gail. We had a good time, enjoyed the show. The story he'll tell us tonight describes a tumble of events leading up to a conference he attended in 1989 that altered his life's direction. Its title is, I love this title, Standing on Tables. Okay, Chris, your turn. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> this is a simple task, assured Anne Rice. She was the keynote speaker, and she says, I want you to line up in order of your birthdays from January 1st to December 31st. Murmurings go through this crowd of 300 people who are attending this uh, summer program. It's an annual summer program at Bowdoin for gifted and talented educators. Now, I'm not yet a teacher, but I went there because I was a salesman and sales just had nothing to do with me. I mean, it just did not reflect who I was. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree and I have a minor in education. And I was very interested in the field. Anyway, she then says, oh, and by the way, you need to do this non-verbally. The crowd begins to mumble and she goes, ah, ah, non-verbally. So there's 300 people in this room. 
And I look around at the room and I see the people milling around and the confusion as they're trying to figure out how to communicate their birthdays and get in order. And I'm just frustrated. There's no way around it. I was really frustrated. And I understand the problem. I understand why she wanted to do it. But I figured if there were 12 or 20 people, go for it. Let it just take its course. But 300 people, <laughs> this is going to take too much time. And without even thinking about it, I jumped up onto the table in front of me. Now, I could not do that anymore. I'm 71. I can't jump up on tables like that. I climb up on the table. But I jumped, literally jumped on this table. I didn't know what I was going to do. And suddenly, I clapped my hands three times. I pointed to a corner of a room, and I went, and then I pointed to the right of that, and then to the right of that three. And then everybody knew instantly, this is where the months are going to be. And within three to four minutes, 300 of us were lined up in order of our birthdays from January 1st to December 31st. It was amazing. Anne had never seen this problem solved like that. And as I look back now, I'm not convinced she was thrilled. I think she might have been hoping to have a 15-minute break or that she was going to, you know, what am I going to do now that they're solved so fast? Anyway, um, it was, you know, it was really exciting. Well, cut to a year later. I have now gotten my first job. I'm up in Guilford, Maine, which is about 45 minutes northwest of Bangor in Orono. I lived in Orono at the time where the University of Maine is. It's, it's an incredible position. I am the gifted and talented teacher, kindergarten through 12th grade for a large school district with six elementary schools. Um, but the truth is, I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to do. I mean, I was really excited, but I'd never been in a gifted program. And I, I just didn't, I didn't know. I hadn't been in a classroom except for a you know, parent-teacher conference in 20 years. So luckily, I lived in Orono, where the University of Maine was, and I went to the library almost every weeknight and on the weekends. And I just, I studied everything I could find on gifted education. And in that studying, I discovered Howard Gardner and multiple intelligences. I discovered Paul Torrance and all his work on creativity. I discovered, you know, all these fantastic things. And by December, I realized every book that I read discussed the same five or six issues and realized, oh, I've discovered the field. This is it. This is what the issues are in gifted education. And now it was time for me to get that into the classroom. So I designed this 12-week uh, thinking skills curriculum where I would go in and I would teach creative problem solving and then critical, I mean, and, uh, you know, cre creative uh, problem solving activities and critical thinking and alternate that kind of thing. Well, I taught in every one of the six schools, all third, fourth, and third and fourth grades. The teachers were like, this is amazing. First of all, they'd never seen anybody in the gifted and talented program show up in their classrooms before. So that was kind of interesting. But the other thing was that the kids, they said, you know, there's students here who just are either never show any excitement about school or they're troublemakers all day, and they are so engaged in these activities. And so it was, you know, they were pretty excited. It was really fun. Well, I was having a great time. I knew I was in the right place. But a cloud came on the horizon that spring. The state of Maine's budget was really having a tough time. So even though gifted and talented education is required by law, they took it off the table for three years and said, you can use your money for gifted and talented. My job was cut anyway, but I was always a person that was pretty positive about things. So I figured it'd work out. So in June, I looked for jobs in Bangor area and within an hour or so of that, nothing. Um, and then there were other clouds on the horizon. My wife and I were going through a divorce. You know, my I was turning 40. And oh, by the way, in April, I had come out. So it was like a really confusing time. But um, all that said and done anyway, I look and nothing. And then in July, I just started to look in central Maine. 
And I don't know how I'd get there, but I figure I'll look in central Maine, nothing. And there are jobs, but remember, I have one year teaching experience. All these other teachers have lots and lots of years. So then I finally, at August, there's, I don't have a job. I finally open up to all of Maine and you know Southern Maine. I can't find anything. And then one morning I get this call from a friend of mine and she says she was teaching in Falmouth, Maine, a few hours, I mean, four miles north of Portland. And she said, uh, you know, I've been teaching the gifted program here for about five years and I'm moving up to the middle school. And I have been thinking about who I'd like to have take care of my kids. And I can't think of anybody better than the guy that stood up on that table in Bowdoin and got all of us organized so fast. So she had sold me to the hiring committee before I even got there. And so I go to the committee and, you know, there's six people and they're asking questions and they were a bit weary and rightfully so. I mean, I had one, one year of experience, right? I found out later there were over 90 applicants for this position. Most of them had been screened out before the interview. Most of them had years of experience, masters, some doctorates. Anyway, we get talking, they're asking questions. And then when I talk to them about creativity, they're like, oh, they get very interested. And I show them examples of students' work. And for example, this kid, Francis. Francis was in the third grade up in Guilford. He sat in the back of his class all the time, very quiet. Everybody thought he was kind of slow, dim, you know. But when I would bring these open-ended activities, he would always have more than one solution. He'd go, oh, well, Mr. Newcomb, I've got a solution, but I've also got another one. And then he'd share these things. And oftentimes he had drawings and pictures. To, <laughs> and they were brilliant. The kids would turn around and look at Francis like, who is this kid? This one dim you know, guy is now the light of the room. He turned out to be the most creative kid in the third grade in, in uh, that school. So those things really thrilled the, the uh, interview committee. And they said that, you know, we've only used the California Achievement Test as our way of identifying students. And so we knew that we were missing kids and not identifying, you know, these kids, but we didn't know how to do it. This is really exciting. And they said, thanks for the interview. They would get back to me. And two weeks later, I was teaching the Gifted and Talented program in Falmouth. It was called Project Think. And for 12 years, I worked in that school and I had the most fun just co-creating these dynamic programs with kids and teachers, teaching every student creative problem solving. And then I had this group called Project Think of my gifted kids. So who'd have thought, you know, I mean, I don't think I should have gotten that job in many ways. And yet uh, there it is, you know, who'd have thought that standing on that table in Bowdoin would have led to this most exciting career and job opportunity. Thanks. Ah, uh, there. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. You yeah. are definitely an enthusiastic um, teller and speaker, and I'm sure that your your gifted and talented were inspired by your your attitude. <laughs> and um, I love that image of jumping up on a table and pointing. That was that was a, quite the task she assigned, and then it came back years later to change your life. Yeah. Happy ending. Good story. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Alrighty. Next up, we have Steve Varnum. He's from Concord, New Hampshire, and has told and written stories for 25 years as an award-winning columnist, writer, and editor at various newspapers in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Now the communications director for the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, Steve still writes stories about people achieving their dreams. But he says he's much more comfortable telling other people's stories than his own. Adopted as a toddler, Steve decided at 25 years old to begin the search for his birth mother. His story tonight 
is one of that journey. It's titled, This is Your Mother. All right, Steve, I'm anxious to hear this story. Thank you. Why did she do it? I bet real cash money that if you ask teenage adoptees what they'd most like to know about their adoptions, nine out of 10 would have the same answer. Why did she do it? That was just one of the questions with which I tormented my parents and myself as a teenager. Was something terribly wrong with me? Is that why my birth parents gave me away? Where in Boston was I born? Did I have brothers and sisters? Did my birth parents ever wonder about me? The Varnums, my adopted parents, had few answers. And most of what they thought they knew turned out to be wrong. <laughs> They'd been told that I was Polish and that my birth mother was very young and quite beautiful and refused to marry my father, maybe because he had some physical deformity. That wasn't enough. And I reacted by challenging authority even more than your average teenage rebel. That was especially true around my birthdays because no one who was actually at my birth would ever be there to light the candles. On New Year's Eve, 1977, with my three-month-old son sleeping in my arms, I decided to look for the answers. Before then, I never felt ready, ready to find parents who were I don't know, dead, drug addicted, insane, ready to learn that I, maybe that I had a fatal disease in my genes along with my straight hair and blue eyes. And probably the most frightening was I ready to find parents who preferred that I remain an unpleasant memory. What if the mother who bore me denied my existence? So I prepared for my search by envisioning a long corridor with a door at the far end. I didn't know what lay behind it, how many more doors there might be, or even if I'd know when I reached the final one. But I decided that before I opened any door, I'd stand in front of it and ask myself if I was really, really ready to accept whatever was on the other side. And if I wasn't, I wouldn't reach for the knob. My adopted parents always knew I would search. I never stopped asking those questions. And when I was ready, they shared all the information they had. I was born Stephen Wayne Derrant in January 1953 and adopted a month before my third birthday. I was 25 when I started searching and just a couple of years into a 25-year journalism career. But even for someone whose job it was to find information that other people wanted to hide, this was a long shot. I didn't really think I'd succeed, but I, I had to try. So in 1978, most states, including Massachusetts, sealed adoptees' original birth records, making them available only by court order. There were no public viewings. The originals were supposed to be replaced by birth certificates containing the adoptive parents' names. In those pre-digitized times, the Office of Vital records and statistics in Boston was a really busy place. It looked like a huge library, a high ceiling place with long metal shelves holding thousands of volumes and a few tables you'd go to for help. Visitors signed in. They want to know how many records you wish to examine and for what purpose. You then located in huge handwritten ledgers the volume and page of the record you wanted to see. You'd find that book on the shelf and bring it to a clerk. 
If the record was sealed, the clerk was to take the book from you to be sure you didn't see it. My first stop was marriages. Two Darren's women were wed between, within five years of my birth. Both would have been around 19 when I was born. I then looked in the birth certificate ledger for my original name and was shocked to read Stephen Wayne Darren, Boston, 1953, volume 14, page 72. Now I was shaking. I took the volume from the shelf and went straight for a help desk that had, I don't know, six or eight people randomly crowded in front of it and a real harried clerk trying to deal with them all. And I got close enough to shove the book at the clerk who opened it to the page, looked at me and said, you may not look at that. I can't. It felt like my heart stopped. No, he said. Then closing the book, he handed it back to me and asked, would you please replace this on the shelf? In the few seconds it took to turn the corner and put the book back, I was sweaty, trembling, terrified. I'd been told my birth certificate wouldn't be filed under my birth name. And I was completely unnerved by actually having the book in my hand. But I put the book back on the shelf and started to leave. I couldn't leave. My boundary pushing 16 year old took charge. What would happen if I snuck a look? So I turned and walked steadily, quietly back to the shelf and opened the book. There was my birth mother, 21-year-old Ruth Derrant, address Green's Trailer Park in Worcester. She'd also been born in Boston. No father was listed. The next stop was death records. Good news, no one named Derrant had died in Massachusetts in the previous 25 years. Then I hit a dead end. That was the last progress I made for months. I did glimpse my mother's birth certificate only long enough to see that hers also had no father listed. Neither the former owner nor the eldest residents of Green's Trailer Park remembered a Ruth Darrant or even just a, mom, a young mom with a baby. She didn't appear in the Worcester city directories from 1953 to 1954. It felt like I was just dead in the water. A few weeks later, I was in my local library researching a newspaper story. And in front of me on the table were two long rows of telephone books, directories for most major cities in the US and every community in Massachusetts. What if my mother's name was in one of those books? So I started thumbing through them. Not the most entertaining reading, up one row and down the other. Again, I was finding nothing, yawning and thinking about leaving, but then the end of the last row was only two feet away. The next to last book was Lawrence, Massachusetts. I had not found one Derrant in nearly 16 feet of phone books. Here, I saw two. I decided on the way back to my office that I was gonna call both and introduce myself as a newspaper reporter looking for Ruth Derrant for a story I was writing. Both were absolutely true. My editor had agreed to let me write a series on adoption searches, including my own. I called the first number. A woman knew Ruth and remembered that she had married and moved to California a long time ago. She also mentioned that Ruth's half sister still lived in Massachusetts. Before we hung up, she asked, what kind of story are you writing? Something on adoption. 
oh, she knew. The second call was answered by a cranky sounding and possibly drunk at 4.30 in the afternoon old man who slurred, there's no roof. Uh, hold on, I don't, I don't understand. Does that mean you know there never was someone named Ruth Darren, or that she went away or that she died? There is no Ruth, he said again and hung up. That's how I met my grandfather. It took a day and a half to track down the half-sister June, and when I did, I told her exactly why I was calling. Was your mother's name Ruth, she asked. Do you think she might be happy to hear from me? I think she might be very happy to hear from you. She said my mother was doing quite well, married and living in Los Angeles, having moved west about 20 years earlier, probably right after she had you, June said. June described her as six feet tall, brown-haired, very attractive, fun-loving, and down-to-earth. She said she'd find her phone number and address and call me the next day. That was a long, stomach-churning day. I didn't know what to do. Should I write a letter to my mother? Would it be okay to call her? I was concerned about whether her husband even knew about me and whether he did or not, how he would take this intrusion. The dinner was on the table at home when the phone rang. I reached to answer it. Is Stephen Varnum there? A woman asked. Yeah, this is me. Stephen, this is your mother. How are you? So that's the end, Steve? That's the end of that chapter, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, you've, you've left us hanging. <laughs> as, any, as any good storyteller does. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting more. <laughs> Indeed, yes, that was a very well-told tale. I was um, literally on the edge of my seat. Wow, that's, um, that's how they handled things. I mean, just closed off my goodness what so you, are you going to come back and tell us the rest of the story at some point yeah well if you if you invite me back i i might be i might come back oh i think we'd be <laughs> i i don't think i'm the only one that would be anxious to hear <laughs> what happened from there Oof. Well, kind of an, an interesting sidelight is, is one of the things I did when I left newspapers was become an advocate working on various issues. And I helped change the adoption laws in New Hampshire uh, to pass a law allowing adoptees to see their original birth certificates. And uh, plague did not take over the land. We did not uh, perish in eternal hellfire but a lot of adoptees now know their history. And uh, adoptive parents didn't just, you know, fall to the side and weep. Yeah, that's, um, that's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Whew. Good story. Um, all right. I, I, <laughs> okay. I'm just reassembling myself on with the show. Um, I believe Kamisha, we have a few photos and then um, some, Possible questions from audience members, a little bit of chat time here with our storytellers before we move on to um, the backstory, correct? That's correct. And thanks to all of our storytellers. They're phenomenal. Very exciting. 
So we do have some great pictures here and I will share my screen with you um, to let you see some of these great pictures. Let me get over here. And I do believe, let's see if I can get this a little bit bigger for you guys. Hi, mom. There's Steve's mom. What a beautiful picture. That's great. Whoops, let me get over here. So there's Steve and then here's another picture. There we go. How's that? That's my mom with my two oldest sons, Derek and Corey at Dodger Stadium. That's fantastic. That is awesome. And let's see. And I think we also, so so a big baseball fan. Are you a baseball fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, are, do you celebrate both teams, West Coast and East Coast? or? Well, actually, interestingly enough, I grew up rooting for the Dodgers. Uh, because, you know, that this was when there wasn't a game on television every night. You'd only see teams, you know, during the playoffs and World Series. And uh, I love Sandy Koufax and Maury Wills and that whole Dodgers team. And Jackie Robinson broke the color line. So, of course. Uh, so I tell people I'm a bi-coastal baseball fan. <laughs> I love it. That's a great picture. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Sure. Um, Let's see if I, and I have, I believe one more, right? Yep. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. You can, you can not show the one with the worst mullet in the world. Oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a Richard Marks mullet in the 80s. I, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Wonderful. Oh, that's so great. That's so great. And now what I'd love to do is share some of the pictures from Rand. Rand, can you tell us a little bit about this road? This, I, I just took a picture of this. This, you know, when people in New England talk about Connecticut being flatlanders, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> this is being a flatlander, okay? That's the way the highways are. For sure. It's like also the same in Oklahoma, by the way. That's right. Yeah, right. just goes for miles and miles like that. Right. If you have a speed bump, it's considered a mountain. And I think you had, oh, there's, there's the belt picture from Steve. It's okay. You can forgive me later. <laughs> uh, we have another great picture of this big. Now, yeah, this gives you an that? idea of the farmland. One of the other things about this farmland, if you look at it, you never see that color of dirt in New England. Look at the dirt, it look, it, it's absolutely black. And that's that wonderful glacial loss. And it is just, it's an amazing, you drop a seed in there, it grows. I tell you, New England farmers, when they found it, must've thought they'd died and gone to heaven. I bet, I bet. And there's no rocks, there's no rocks. Oh, well, that's the other thing. There's probably very yeah, surprised. That's another by. whole another story. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing those pictures with us. Are there any questions in the chat? Um, oh, it says here that Steve is a great singer and drummer. And I believe that you have your grandchildren on the show with you tonight. I see one, two grandchildren. I see a great grandchild. Hi, Stella. Oh, hi, Stella. <laughs> and a couple of my music mates as well. That's fantastic. Does anybody have any questions? We have like just a quick, quick minute here for uh, Rand 
or Chris or Steve before we um, move on to our after story segment. I, I was curious about um, what Rand learned was the from his father from that incident. What was the expectation that he had about his dad that um, he no longer had, or it, it, what changed? I think as he said, it, it changed his his view of his dad, and it was in what way? I guess that's was I was curious about. I think my dad was pretty taciturn. He was pretty, uh, I guess he was pretty locked into himself is what it felt like. And to see the compassion that he had for this stranger was something very different that I never saw before. I saw him in all these official capacities as opposed to this wasn't official, this was just caring. And that was new and different. Yeah, and I think we we see, we have memories of our parents like that, that we're Sometimes we just get a glimpse of something that we didn't expect. We remember it much differently when we're older. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Anyone else? Okay. Well, before we um, wrap up tonight, I want to thank everybody with us. Yes. Uh, thanks, everyone, for being with us tonight, especially our tellers, Chris Newcomb, Rand O'Brien, Steve Varnum. Um, we are... Uh, <laughs> We are going to soon move to our after our after story conversation segment with Rand and David Frainer. Um, what I want to talk to you about is first a reminder to save the date that Sarah mentioned at the beginning of our show tonight, which was June thirtieth at six thirty p.m. and the Portsmouth Senior Center. And just keep your eyes out for more details in our newsletter about that event. Can uh, I just say something real quick on that, Kamisha? Oh, yes, Tina. On our schedule, that's in place of the one that would normally be the Tuesday night show. Right, because it's a yes. Friday, right? Yes. Big Friday night. Thank you, Tina. Um, our next True Tales Live Zoom show is on Tuesday, February 28th, featured Teller Night. And that is uh, with Pat Spaulding, our MC, and she will be featuring a segment of stories on downsizing. And that will be at 7 p.m. Uh, you can go to truetaleslivenh.org to find the link to register. Our dates and themes for 2023 are posted on our website. We hope that you will go and check them out and send us your story proposals. We're always looking for storytellers. It's so much fun. Um, encourage you to attend one of our monthly Zoom workshop meetings, first Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And that next one is on February 7. Contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and find out more for links to register for our workshops. You can watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98 on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand or a podcast. You could go to truetaleslivenh.org to access all of these. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Bedingfield, Tina Charpentier, I know I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, Tina, and Amy Antonucci, 
thank you so much. I am Kamisha Foley. And before we move to the backstory interview with of Rand O'Brien by David, please join us for our big minute of fun with our True Tales dance party. We have a great time with our dance party and really hope you will have your video on and dance with us a little while, even if you're seated. You might want to switch to gallery view and stand up. Play it for us, John. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.